Chapter Two, Part Four of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part Four of Seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part Four. Now I have gone through every route with the payments. As to the general allegation of the amount of money fraudulently claimed and received, the allegation in the indictment is that J. W. Dorsey received, by virtue of these fraudulent orders, made in pursuance of the conspiracy, brought to perfection by these overt acts, for the year ending the 30th day of June, 1880, one hundred and twenty-four thousand five hundred and ninety-one dollars. Good. The evidence shows that there was paid on the seven Dorsey routes in all sixty-two thousand eight hundred and thirty-one dollars and forty-six cents. That is fatal as to that. But we will go further. One of these routes was turned over to Vale by Dorsey, Route 35015 and the amount paid to Vale was $2,837.16, so that the amount paid on the Dorsey routes, instead of being $124,591, was in truth and in fact $58,994.30. Now the charge is that this was all received by John W. Dorsey, whereas the evidence shows that John W. Dorsey received three warrants, two for $87 each, both of which were recouped, and one warrant for $392, and that is every cent he ever received, according to the evidence in this case. There is what you might call a discrepancy. The indictment says he got $124,591, the evidence shows that he got $392 and not another copper. I shall insist that that is a variance. If it is not a variance, I will take my oath it is a difference. The second claim is that John R. Minor received upon the routes awarded to him and claimed to be his in the indictment $93,067 for the fiscal year ending June thirtieth, 1880. The evidence is that, as a matter of fact, on all these routes the money was paid to assignees and subcontractors, and that John R. Minor, as a fact, received not one cent from the government. The third charge is that Peck received, for the same fiscal year, $178,438. The evidence shows that he received nothing. There is another difference. Thus it will be seen that every link in the chain in this indictment is either a mistake or a falsehood. Every other one is a mistake, and then every other one is a falsehood, and this indictment was made by adding mistakes to falsehoods, and what the indictment weaves the evidence reveals. Now, why were these dates put in this indictment, gentlemen? We have now gone over every overt act charged in this indictment. The result is that not one of the charges set forth has really been sustained. 
hereafter i will notice some things that have been proved outside of the indictment nearly every petition and letter is admitted to have been honest and genuine those that have been attacked were misdescribed in the indictment and the evidence has shown that they were substantially true there is a fatal variance between the allegation and the proof so far as these charges in the indictment are concerned and they are left absolutely without a prop the dates attached to the overt acts are false there is only one of the routes in which the petitions are properly described and that is route four four one four zero where the petitions are alleged to have been and were filed on the twenty third of may and every one was proved to have been genuine and honest the dates on the indictments were false now why let me tell you gentlemen they had to deceive the grand jury it would not do to tell the grand jury these men conspired on the twenty-third of may and in pursuance to that conspiracy filed some affidavits on the third day preceding they had first to deceive the grand jury and put in false dates for the filing of petitions for the filing of subcontracts and for the drawing of money what else did they want these false dates for to deceive the circuit court or rather the supreme court to deceive his honor because if the date of these petitions the date of these oaths had been set forth in the indictment it would have been bad the court would have instantly said you cannot prove a conspiracy on the twenty-third of may by showing acts in april previous so these false dates were put in in the first place to fool the grand jury and in the next place to keep this court in the dark it was necessary to have a good charge on paper and why did they expect to win this case on that indictment no but they could keep it in court long enough to allow them to attack and malign the character of these defendants they could keep it in court long enough to vent their venom and spleen upon good and honest men and justify in part the commencement of this prosecution this forenoon i tried to strip the green leaves off the tree of this indictment now i propose to attack the principal limbs and trunk what is the scheme of this indictment i insist that the law is precisely the same as to the scheme of the conspiracy in its description that it is as to the description of an overt act now what is the scheme of this indictment that is to say the scheme of this conspiracy we want to know what we are doing it is the great bulwark of human liberty that the charge against a man must be in writing and must be truthfully described first for the defendants with the exception of the officers brady and turner to write and procure the writing of fraudulent letters communications and applications now let us be honest is there the slightest evidence that a fraudulent letter was ever written is there the slightest evidence that a fraudulent communication was ever sent to the department not the slightest evidence second to attach to said petitions and applications forged names is there any evidence of that except in one case 
and the evidence in that case is that the order was made before the petition was received, and that the petition was never acted upon. More than that, is there any evidence as to who forged any names to any petitions? Not the slightest. Which of these defendants are you going to find guilty upon that petition, when there is not the slightest evidence as to who wrote it? What next? To have these petitions signed by fictitious names, or with the names of persons not residing upon the routes. Is there any evidence of that kind? Is there any evidence that the signatures of real persons were attached, and the real persons did not live upon the routes? I leave it to you, gentlemen. Fourth, to make and procure false oaths, declarations, and statements. Those I shall examine. Fifth, for William H. Turner falsely to endorse on the back of these jackets false brief statements of the contents of genuine petitions. You know what has become of that charge, gentlemen. This indictment against Turner has been changed into a certificate of good moral character. That is the end of the indictment, so far as he is concerned, and I am glad of it. He is a man who fought to keep the flag of my country in the air, and who lay upon the field of Gettysburg sixteen days with the lead of the enemy in his body, and I am glad to have the evidence show that he was not only a patriot, but an honest man with a spotless reputation. I do not think that, in order to be a great man, you have got to be as cold as an icicle. I do not think that if you wish to be like God, if there is one, it is necessary to be heartless. That is not my judgment. When I find that a man is honest, I am glad of it. When I find that a patriot has been sustained, my heart throbs in unison with his. What is the next? That Brady, for the benefit, gain, and profit of all the defendants, and I emphasize the word all, because upon that I am going to cite to the court a little law, made fraudulent orders, that is, for the benefit of Turner, Brady, and everybody else. Eighth, that he caused these fraudulent orders to be certified by the auditor of the Treasury for the Post Office Department. Ninth, that Brady refused to enter fines against these contractors when they failed to perform their service, that he fraudulently refused to impose these fines. What is the evidence? The evidence is that the whole amount of fines imposed by Brady was $126,865.80. That evidence is given in support of the charge that he refused to impose them, yet the imposition amounts to $126,000. How much of that vast sum did he relieve the contractors from upon the evidence? $23,000, leaving standing of fines that were paid, $103,670.12. That evidence is offered to show that he conspired not to impose the fines. $126,000 imposed in fines, and only $23,000 remitted. Yet the charge was, and an argument has been made upon it before this jury, 
that the contractors agreed that he was to have fifty per cent of all the fines he took off think of a man making that contract with a man having power to impose the fines now all you will take off i will give you fifty per cent of there is an old story that a friend of a man who was bitten by a dog said to him if you will take some bread and sop it in the blood and give it to the dog it will cure the bite yes he says but my god suppose the other dog should hear of it think of putting yourself in the power of a man who has the right to fine you and yet that is a part of the logic of this prosecution the next charge is of fraudulently cutting off service and then fraudulently starting it and allowing a month's extra pay that happened i believe in two cases thirty dollars in one case and something more in the other the court thirty nine dollars mr ingersoll then the case is nine dollars better than i thought twelfth by the defendants fraudulently filing subcontracts that i have already shown as an impossible offense all these things were done for the purpose of deceiving the postmaster general now the court has already intimated that we have no right to say that the postmaster general would be a good witness to show whether he was deceived or not and that it may be that his eyes were sealed so tightly that he has not got them open yet but whether they can prove it by him or by somebody else they have got to prove it in order to make out this case that is the scheme of this indictment it makes no difference whether the postmaster general has found out that he was deceived or not the jury have got to find it out before they find a verdict against the defendants it is possible that the postmaster general thinks he was not deceived or that he was i do not know what his opinion is and do not care they have got to prove it by somebody i do not say they can prove it by him i do not know this is the scheme and what i insist is that this scheme must be substantiated and must be proved precisely as it has been laid without the variation of a hair you must prove it as you have charged it and you must charge it as you prove it it is simply a double statement i wish to submit some authorities to the court upon this question must the exact scheme be proved first i will refer the court to the tenth edition of starkey page six twenty seven it is a most general rule that no allegation which is descriptive of the identity of that which is legally essential to the claim or charge can ever be rejected as an absolute and natural identity of the claim or charge alleged with that proved consists in the agreement between them in all particulars so their legal identity consists in their agreement in all the particulars legally essential to support the charge or claim and the identity of those particulars depends wholly upon the proof of the allegation and circumstances by which they are ascertained limited and described no matter whether the description was necessary or unnecessary to reject any allegation descriptive of that which is essential to a charge or a claim 
would obviously tend to mislead the adversary. It seems indeed to be a universal rule that a plaintiff or prosecutor shall in no case be allowed to transgress those limits which in point of description, limitation, and extent he has prescribed for himself. He selects his own terms in order to express the nature and extent of his charge or claim. He cannot therefore justly complain that he is limited by them. As no allegation therefore which is descriptive of any fact or matter which is legally essential to the claim or charge can be rejected altogether, inasmuch as the variance destroys the legal identity of the claim or charge alleged with that which is proved, upon the same principle no allegation can be proved partially in respect to the extent or magnitude where the precise extent or magnitude is in its nature descriptive of the charge or claim. Nothing can be plainer than that. I refer also to Starkey on Evidence, 7th American Edition, Volume 1, page 442. There he says, In the next place it is clear that no averment of any matter essential to the claim or charge can ever be rejected and this position extends to all allegations which operate by way of description or limitation of that which is material. I also cite Russell on Crimes, Ninth American Edition, Volume 3, page 305, and Roscoe's Criminal Evidence, Seventh Edition, page 86. I now call the attention of the court to the case of Rex v. Pullman and others. To Campbell, 239. I may say before reading this decision that, in my judgment, so far as the scheme of this indictment is concerned, it should end this case. This was an indictment against the defendants which charged that they unlawfully and corruptly did meet, combine, conspire, consult, consent, and agree among themselves and together, with diverse other evil-disposed persons, to the jurors unknown unlawfully and corruptly to procure, obtain, receive, have, and take, namely to the use of them, the said P, F, J, K, and S, H, and of certain other persons to the jurors likewise unknown, large sums of money, namely the sum of two thousand pounds, as a compensation and reward for an appointment to be made by the Lord's Commissioners of the Treasury of our Lord the King of some person to a certain office, touching and concerning His Majesty's customs, to wit, the office of a coast-waiter in the Port of London, through the corrupt means and procurement of them, the said F. P. J. K. and S. H., and of certain other persons to the jurors unknown, the said office then and there being an office of public trust, touching the landing and shipping coastwise of diverse goods liable to certain duties of custom. The indictment went on and stated various overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. There were several other counts which all laid the conspiracy in the same way. Now I come to the part of the case which, in my judgment, affects this. It appears that the defendants, Pullman, Keylock, and Harvey, had entered into a negotiation with one Hess to procure him the office mentioned in the indictment for the sum of two thousand pounds, 
which they had agreed to share among themselves in certain stipulated proportions. But although this money was lodged at the banking house of Stenks, Snaith, and Company, in which the defendant Watson was a partner, and he knew it was to be paid to Pullman and Keylock upon Hess's appointment, there was no evidence to show that he knew that Sarah Harvey was to have a part of it, or that she was at all implicated in the transaction. He was a co-conspirator, and he knew that the money was to be deposited at this place. He knew that, but he did not know that Sarah Harvey was to have a part of it. Lord Ellenborough threw out a doubt whether as to Watson the indictment was supported by the evidence. The evidence being that Watson did not know that it was to be divided in the precise way stated in the indictment. Manifestly, they need not have stated in the indictment how it was to be divided, but having stated it, the question is, are they bound by the statement? Let us see. The Attorney General contended that the words in italics coming under a videlicet might be entirely rejected. The sense would be complete without them. The indictment would then run that the defendants conspired together to obtain a large sum of money as a consideration and reward for appointment to be made by the Lord's Commissioners of the Treasury. This was the corpus delecti. The use to which the money might be applied was wholly immaterial. The offense of conspiring together would be complete however the money might be disposed of. True. There was no occasion to state this, and the averment might be treated as surplusage. Suppose the manner in which the money was to be disposed of had been unknown. Would it have been impossible to convict those engaged in the conspiracy? But without rejecting the words, the variance was immaterial. The charge in the indictment had been substantially made out as laid. Dallas and Walton, of counsel for Watson, denied that the words could be rejected, though laid under a videlicet, as they were material, and they were not repugnant to anything that went before. The application of the money might be of the very essence of the offense. Suppose it had been obtained for the use of the Lords of the Treasury, who would make the appointment. Would not this be a much greater crime than if the money had been obtained for the benefit of a public charity? I think that reasoning is bad. I think the crime is exactly the same. But if the words were rejected, then the variance was more palpable. In that case, there being no mention of any persons to whose use the money was obtained, the necessary presumption was that it was obtained to the use of the defendants themselves. That is good sense. The evidence shows, however, that Watson was to have no part of it, and that he was utterly ignorant of the manner in which it was to be distributed. Lord Ellenborough, there can be no doubt that the indictment might have been so drawn as to include Watson and the conspiracy. Even if the manner the money to be applied was unknown, this might have been stated on the face of the indictment and then no evidence of its application would have been required. The question is whether the conspiracy is actually laid be proved by the evidence? That is the question. Have they made out a case according to the scheme of the indictment? 
Has the conspiracy, as laid, been proved by the evidence? I think that as to Watson, it is not. He is charged with conspiring to procure this appointment through the medium of Mrs. Harvey, of whose existence for aught that appears he was utterly ignorant. When a conspiracy is charged, it must be charged truly. He did not know that Mrs. Harvey was to have a portion of the money, and yet she was a member of the conspiracy. The evidence showed that she was to have a portion of it, and Lord Ellenborough says that they did not prove the charge as laid, and that it cannot include Watson. Garrow submitted that it was unnecessary to prove that each of the defendants knew how the money was to be disposed of, and that it was enough to show that the destination of the money was as stated in the indictment. A fact of which all of those engaged in the conspiracy must be taken to be cognizant. Watson, by engaging with the other conspirators to gain the same end, had adopted the means by which the end was to be accomplished. That is what the attorney for the government says. Lord Ellenborough replies, You must prove that all the defendants were cognizant of the object of the conspiracy and the mode stated in the indictment by which it was to be carried into effect. A contrary doctrine would be extremely dangerous. The defendant, Watson, must be acquitted. Now let us apply that case to this. In the first place, they must not only prove this indictment according to the scheme, but they must prove that every defendant understood that scheme, knew the scheme, how it was to be accomplished, and what was done with the money. The Court In that case, Watson was acquitted. What was done with the others? Mr. Ingersoll They, of course, were found guilty, because they were guilty, as the indictment charged. They knew the exact scheme set forth in the indictment. They were guilty exactly as the indictment said. They divided the money exactly as the indictment charged they divided the money, and they were cognizant of every fact set forth in the indictment. But Watson, although a co-conspirator, did not know what was to be done with the money, and consequently was to be discharged. Why? because they did not prove the conspiracy as to him as charged. They need not have set forth in the indictment what was to be done with the money, but they did set it forth, and then they had to prove it. They need not have said that every man knew what was done with the money, but they did say that every man knew, and they failed to prove it. And when they failed to prove it, as to Watson, he was discharged. Now, gentlemen of the jury, what I insist upon, and what I shall ask the court to instruct you, is that the government, no matter how guilty the defendant may be, no matter if he has robbed this government of hundreds of millions, is to be tried by this indictment, is to be guilty of this charge as written in this indictment, and nowhere else, and he has got to understand it. They say he understood it, and they have got to prove that he understood it. Now, upon that same subject, they say that the money was to be divided between all these parties, between Rodell, Turner, and everybody. I think it was Mr. Bliss who said there was no evidence that Rodell ever had any of the money. 
certainly they do not think that Turner obtained any of the money. Is there any evidence of it? Not the slightest. Is there evidence that there ever was any division? Any evidence that there was ever any money divided upon a solitary route mentioned in this indictment? Not one particle. If you say there is evidence, when was the division made? The court. The question is not what was done. The question is with what view the conspiracy was entered into. Mr. Ingersoll. Certainly. The court. The object of the conspiracy may have failed, and this money might not have been divided as they intended, but still the conspiracy would be here. Mr. Ingersoll. Good, perfectly. But if they set forth in this indictment that the money was divided, that statement is not worth the last year's dead leaf unless they prove it. That is all I insist upon. You cannot find anybody guilty of charges in an indictment unless you prove them. Unless you prove them, they amount to no more than charges written in water than characters engraved on fog or written on clouds. You have got to prove them. Now, upon this same point, I say that if the scheme has not been established by the evidence, the case fails, no matter what the proof. The offense must not only be proved as charged, but it must be charged as proved, doubling the statement for the sake of doubling the idea of accuracy. That is in Archibald's Criminal Pleadings, American Edition, page 36. The same thing is held in First Chitty's Criminal Law, 213. I also refer to the case of King against Walker, 3rd Campbell, 264. King versus Robinson, First Hope's Nissy Prius reports, 595. I have the books here, but I will not take up the time of this court in reading them. Now, if I am right, that is the language of that indictment. The overt acts with the leaves are gone. The scheme with the branch and trunk are gone. They prove no such scheme. They prove no such division. I will now proceed to examine the alleged evidence against my clients, Stephen W. and John W. Dorsey, and I want to say right on the commencement that suspicion is not evidence. You charge that a couple of persons conspired, that they met about nine o'clock on the shadowy side of the street. A suspicious circumstance. Why did they not get under the lamp? They were seen together once more, and the moment a man came up they walked off. Guilty. They ran. And out of these idiotic suspicions that never would have entered the mind, except for the reason that the persons were charged, hundreds of people began to say, There is something in it. They met four or five times. One of them wrote a letter to the other, and so help me God, it was not dated. Another suspicious circumstance. There was a heading on the paper. It was not the number of his office. So they work it up, and ignorance begins to stare, and wonders to open its mouth, and finally prejudice finds a verdict. Suspicion, gentlemen, is not evidence. 
you want to go at this with this idea whatever a man does the presumption is it is an honest act until the contrary is shown those men wrote letters they had a right to do it they met they had a right to meet they entered into contracts they had a right to do it no matter whether they were dated or not dated one of the greatest judges of england said if you let out of the greatest man's brains all the suspicions all the rumors all the mistakes and all the nonsense the amount of pure knowledge left would be extremely small if you take out of this case all the suspicions all the guesses all the rumors all the epithets all the arrogant declarations the amount of real evidence would be surprisingly small now i want to try this case that way i do not want to try it by prejudice prejudice is born of ignorance and malice one of the greatest men of this country said prejudice is the spider of the mind it weaves its web over every window and over every crevice where light can enter and then disputes the existence of the light that it has excluded that is prejudice prejudice will give the lie to all the other senses it will swear the northern star out of the sky of truth you must avoid it it is the womb of injustice and a man who cannot rise above prejudice is not a civilized man he is simply a barbarian i do not want this case tried on prejudice prejudice will shut its eyes against the light i want you to try it without that and right here although it is a subject about which most courts are a little tender the question arises as to the jury being judges of the law and fact one of the attorneys for the government mr merrick told us that at one time he insisted that the jury was the judge of the law and made this remarkable declaration but even at the time i spoke the words to the jury i did not believe them to be indicative of safe and true principles of law was he candid then is he candid now i do not know but his doctrine appears to be this when i am afraid of the court i insist on the jury judging the law when i am afraid of the jury i turn the law over to the court but in this case having confidence in both judge and jury it is wholly immaterial to me how the question is decided now if it please the court i believe the law to be simply this i believe the jury to be absolute judges of the facts and yet if on the facts they find a man guilty whom the court thinks is not guilty the court will grant a new trial the court has the powers to set aside a verdict because the jury find contrary to the evidence the court cannot do it however when the jury finds a verdict of not guilty i do not believe that the jury have a right to disregard the law from the court unless a juryman upon his oath can say that he believes he knows or is satisfied that is not the law and he must be honest in that and he must not be acting upon caprice he must be absolutely honest he must be in that condition of mind that to follow the law pointed out by the court 
would trample upon his conscience, and that he has not the right to do. That is all the distance I go. The history of the world will show that some of the grandest advances made in law have been made by juries who would not allow their consciences to be trampled into the earth by tyrannical judges. I am not saying that for this case. I am simply saying that as a fact. There was a time in this country when they used to try a man who helped another to gain his liberty, and there was now and then a man on the jury who had sense enough and heart enough and conscious enough to say, I will die before I carry out that kind of law. They did not carry it out either, and finally the law became so contemptible, so execrable, that everybody despised it. All I ask this jury to do is just to be governed by the evidence and by the law as the court will give it to them, honestly and fairly. End of Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the First Star Route Trial, Part 4 of 7 Read by Roger Moline